Good morning. I'm struck having just sung that hymn to note that it was written just five years after the Spanish flu. So the author of that hymn uh, must have certainly had friends and family impacted by that as he wrote those words, great is thy faithfulness. He knew what he was talking about. COVID-19 has all of us sheltering in place. A few members have lost friends and family to the virus. We've all become isolated. Jobs have been lost. Salaries have been cut. Family get-togethers have been postponed. Wedding plans have been altered. The list goes on and on. We are in the midst of a global pandemic that will change quite literally change our generation and probably the next. Two weeks ago, I took us to Psalm 85. The psalmist there is responding to a national catastrophe and he's responding with prayer. You'll remember Psalm 85 verse six. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? This is a good prayer for us. Our difficulties are a unique opportunity for self-examination, and they are a springboard for revival. It's what we've been talking about all morning long, the opportunity that this crisis presents us as individuals and as a church for revival. We should pray for a renewed sense of God's mercy, his compassion, and his grace. We should pursue revival. But what does the pursuit of revival actually look like? It looks like examining all of the rooms in your spiritual house and seeing where you need to change. Last week, we saw how one room has Galatians 6.10 written on the threshold. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, today, we enter into another room. And this room is inscribed with the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We need to walk around this room now. We need to dust the baseboards. We need to see if the curtains need to be replaced. We need to rearrange the furniture. Christians are to be very bold. And if you are not bold, well, that may show that you lack the hope that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 3. 12. So let's start by asking the question, what is boldness? Well, lots of things come to our minds when we hear that word. For example, you may think of being courageous. The lion in the Wizard of Oz wanted courage. He hated being afraid. He wanted to be more confident. He wanted to be bolder. And this is similar to the way that boldness is used in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. We are told that in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence. In Christ, we don't have to be afraid. We can boldly approach the throne of God's amazing grace. We can courageously come to him. We don't have to be afraid. 
we can be bold. And this should be a, a comforting truth, especially now. Whatever, whatever age you are, wherever you are, if Jesus is your Savior, you can approach the throne of God's grace boldly. You have direct access to the King of Kings. Pastor Rico Tice of London tells the story of standing in a, a waiting room of a nice country club in London. While he was in that waiting room, there was another individual standing right next to him. For five minutes, they stood together awkwardly not talking to one another. And then when the stranger standing next to him finally left, he realized he was standing next to Prince William, the future king of England. But he missed out on that unique opportunity to talk to him. As Christians, we don't ever have to miss out on an opportunity to talk to King Jesus. We need not be afraid. We can boldly approach the throne of God's grace every moment. We can pray, as Dustin reminded us of a few minutes ago, without ceasing. When you hear the word bold, you may also think of being confrontational. I want to talk to the kids who are watching for just a moment. Let's say that your dad is helping you with math. You are learning how to multiply large numbers. Well, your dad works through a problem and you realize he got it wrong. And you say, Dad, you made a mistake. Well, your dad might reply, well, that was very bold of you to, to question me, the adult. And then he double checks his answer and sees that, in fact, you're right. He was wrong. Well, it was good you confronted him. You should always confront him respectfully. But it was good that you confronted him. You were, you were bold. And it's the kind of boldness that we see in the Bible. Paul often wrote to churches confronting them about their sin. And when he did, he would often go out of his way to say he knows he's being very bold, challenging them about their faith, like a child correcting his father's math. But Paul did it anyway. He was very bold. So the Bible uses the word bold in different ways, but the most common meaning and the meaning we find in 2 Corinthians 3.12 involves being bold with the gospel, being open with the gospel, freely sharing the word of Christ with other people. We've all grown used to this word pandemic, pandemic. It comes from two Greek words, pan, which means all, and demic, which is from a Greek word, demos, which means people. So pandemic literally means all people. A pandemic is when a disease is in the process of spreading to all people. Well the, well, the word for bold in the New Testament is similar in the sense that it comes from two Greek words, the first word being pan or all, the second word, risis, which means speaking or speech. To be bold is quite literally to be all speaking, to, be, to give someone your whole mind, 
all of what you're thinking, to be generous with your speech. A bold person, quite literally, shares all of the gospel with other people. He speaks freely about the truth. She speaks openly about the words of life. In Acts, when the authorities arrested Peter and John, they commanded the apostles to be silent. They said they could not share the gospel anymore. Peter and John refused. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verse 19. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That is boldness. And that very day, the entire church gathered together and prayed that they too would have such boldness. Acts 4.29, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. With all boldness. With, with all speaking. I love these examples. I love the way that Peter and John said they cannot but speak of what they have seen and, and heard. They, they couldn't help themselves. Boldness is the inevitable result of truly knowing Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Those saved by God speak for God. That's the way it works. Listen to how one Christian put it long ago. He wrote, if a man in a church has the conviction that the gospel is of God, that it is unspeakably glorious, adapted to all and needed by all in order to bring salvation, then the word will be preached openly and without reserve. Openly. And without reserve. That's what it means to be bold. If you are convinced the gospel is from God, if you are convinced that people need the gospel for salvation, if you believe that it is true, you cannot help being bold any more than peanut butter can help being sticky or honey can help being sweet. It's inevitable. You will be bold. Boldness is being open with the gospel. If God saved you, you will be bold. It's not an option. Boldness is a piece of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Some believers, yes, are bolder than other believers, just as some believers are more loving, some believers are more patient, some believers are more kind. But no Christian has the right to be silent. Silence is simply not an option for the believer under any circumstances. No true Christian can be silent about Jesus. That might be hard for you to hear. Listen to how Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, if you are silent about Jesus today, 
he will be silent about you tomorrow. Have you ever given or received the silent treatment? It must be one of the meanest ways to hurt somebody. When you, when you refuse to acknowledge someone, you're, you're acting as if they, they don't exist, as if they don't matter. And it's an awful thing to do to another person. But it's a downright blasphemous thing to do to God, to act as if God does not exist, to act as if God does not save, to act as if God does not love, to act as if God does not judge. How might we fail to acknowledge God as our Savior? Well, it might look a little bit like this, like going through life only whispering his name, constantly downplaying your interest in, your part in Christianity. It might look like being by refusing to be open about your faith in your neighborhood, in your office, among your friends, among your family members, among your coworkers. It might look like always failing to turn conversations to Christ. If we won't acknowledge Jesus here on earth, he won't acknowledge us in heaven. And this is a serious warning that we must take seriously. Boldness for the Christian isn't an, an option. We must speak openly, all speaking about the gospel. Now, chances are that you are watching this right now because someone chose to boldly share the gospel with you. For me, it was a high school friend. We went to see a play together. She turned the conversation to Jesus. I questioned her. And she told me that I needed to repent and believe in the good news of Christ. For my wife, it was an older sister who first told her the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, it's because someone was open with you about who Jesus is. For the first time in over a century, the world has come to a standstill. America is bracing for the onslaught of more COVID-19 deaths. Now, more than ever, the church needs revival. We need to be who we are. We need to be bold. A few years ago, Mount Vernon spent an entire year devoted especially to the topic of evangelism. We devoted ourselves to this idea of developing in our congregation, a culture of evangelism. We exhorted one another to naturally, meaning in the relationships that God has given us, and regularly, meaning quite often, and with a sense of urgency, meaning understanding that the stakes are high. We encouraged one another to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, a few years later, how are we doing? Boldness is being open with the gospel. It's being generous with the words of life that you have received. If you had a vaccine for the COVID-19 virus, nothing could keep you from telling the world you would lose your fortune, you would lose even your life if you could get that cure out there. Church family, we have something much more important than a cure 
for COVID-19. We have the cure for sin and death. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be bold. Now, how can we be bolder? There is only one way. We need to lean into the first half of 2 Corinthians 3.12. We need to lean into our hope. Many of you will remember our friend and ministry partner, Max Stiles. Max spent the early years of his life and ministry uh, engaged in campus ministry throughout the Southeast. After serving in Dubai for many years, Mac and Leanne moved to Iraq for Mac to pastor Erbil International Baptist Church. Mac loves Jesus, and he is one of the most gifted, one of the boldest evangelists that I have ever met. Everywhere he goes, Mac seeks to acknowledge Jesus. He wants people to know that he's a Christian. So when we would go to a restaurant for lunch, he would almost always tell the waiter, hey, we're Christians and we're about to pray and we'd like to know if there's anything that, that we can pray for you about. And if the waiter seemed at all interested, Mac would proceed to say something about Jesus. A few years ago, Mac wrote a book called Marks of a Messenger. It's a book about evangelism for the everyday Christian. I want to read a couple of sentences from Mac's book. And uh, as I read these sentences, maybe you can find out what the root of boldness is. Mac wrote this. If anything is needed in Christian witness today, it is boldness. We don't need bigger music ministries, longer prayer walks, or nicer church foyers. We need boldness, wise boldness, gracious boldness, boldness rooted in the hope that we have in the gospel. Where is boldness rooted? In the hope we have in the gospel. Well, that sounds a lot like 2 Corinthians 3.12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. According to our brother Mac, who clearly got it from the Bible, the stronger our hope in Christ is, the bolder for Christ we will be. There may be many reasons that you are tempted not to be bold. It could be because you care a lot about what other people think. We often call that fear of man. It could be you don't really know what exactly you ought to say about Jesus when you have the opportunity. It could be that your life is so busy you don't make time to speak of Jesus. Well, our lives have certainly slowed down right now, haven't they? All this may be true, but these problems that I've identified are merely tiny pebbles scattered on the ground next to the mountain, which really is our greatest problem. The real problem, the greatest problem kicking back against our being bold is our weak hope. The real problem is floundering faith. For the remainder of our time, I want to speak words that should build up your hope in Christ and in his gospel. I want to remind you just how glorious the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is. It's so wonderful and so amazing 
that you have every reason to be hopeful, and only when you are hopeful will you be bold. So right now, I don't want to make you feel guilty for not being as bold as you ought to be. I want to point you to the only true source of boldness, the fountain from which all boldness flows, our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the words of the Apostle Paul can make us more hopeful. It would be good to remember something about 2 Corinthians right now. Uh, There were people in Corinth in the first century who struggled to believe that Paul was really an apostle. And they doubted because Paul suffered so much. They thought that God's servant certainly couldn't be suffering, couldn't be as afflicted as Paul clearly was. Now, obviously, they didn't really understand Jesus, the Savior who had no place to lay his head and who ended his earthly life on a cross. But nonetheless, these Corinthians, with their bad thinking, did not respect Paul. They did not identify Paul as an apostle because they thought his life filled with suffering was unworthy of a servant of God. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians to set the record straight. And one of the first things that he shares with the church is just how much God comforts them, him, in his affliction. And in fact, he says this, this comfort in suffering is evidence of God's love for him. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So right out of the gate, Paul turns the tables on his critics. His suffering doesn't discredit him from being an apostle. Far from it. God's comfort in suffering is actually evidence that he is quite fit for service, quite useful to the Lord, able to bring comfort to others who are afflicted. God is his comforter. We all get sick. And when we are sick, what do those who love us do? Well, they might tell us to stay in bed. They might put a cold washcloth on our forehead They might fill us with chicken soup. Our affliction is an opportunity for them to show they care, their opportunity to comfort us. Well, God is is our comforter. This is how God treats his children. Of course, Christians suffer, right? God doesn't bubble wrap us to somehow keep us from getting sick. But here's the difference. In the midst of our suffering, Psalm 62, verse 2, is exactly right. God is our rock. He is our salvation. He is our fortress. We will not be greatly shaken. Our country can be crippled by an invisible virus, but our God cannot be crippled. He's strong, and he's wise, and he knows what he's doing. Just look at the church scattered God is comforting us. Well, how do I know? Because I see you comforting one another. God, through his word, by the power of his spirit, is knitting our hearts together 
even as we're apart. He's challenging us to love one another when once we took it for granted, even the simple ability to be together. This is God's hand. This is God's doing. This is God waking up a sleepy church. This is God comforting us through us in our affliction. God comforts us. And so Paul points to the comfort that he has received from God to argue that he really is God's apostle. He really is God's servant. But there's more. It's not only Paul's comfort that commends his ministry. It's the message that Paul received from God. And that's really the point of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul takes us all the way back to Moses to explain how the gospel message is so wonderful and so glorious and such good evidence that he is a servant of God. At Mount Sinai, after God saved Israel from Egypt, God gave them his law. And these commands regulated the lives of God's people And God chose Moses, the prophet, to deliver these commands to his people. This was Moses' ministry, and it was a particularly hard job because these commands could never actually bring life to the people. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, Paul refers to Moses' ministry as a ministry of death. This is because the law could not change people. It didn't have the power to make them better. In fact, the law simply worked to make sure people knew how awful they really are. Last week, I mentioned how my door to playing in the NBA had closed uh, long ago, and a few of you made fun of me for that. Yes, I know this is ridiculous. I was never going to play in the NBA, but let's just keep the dream alive for a moment. Suppose I went online and watched a YouTube channel of Michael Jordan showcasing his greatest moves. He taught viewers how he dribbled and how he passed and how he cut to the basket and how he shot the ball. And let's say I watched those clips over and over again and maybe I even got up my basketball and tried as hard as I could to mimic Jordan. And sure, I might get a little better, But more than anything, all those video clips would simply lead me to one conclusion. I really am awful. All those lessons would show me how bad I really am. And you see, this is what the ministry of Moses was like. The the law that Moses preached, all those commands, they really were awesome. They were a display of the glorious and holy and perfect character of God. But the more the people heard the law, the more they realized how sinful and how awful and ungodly they really are. The law can't bring eternal life. The law can't change us. The law is a word of judgment. Moses' ministry, Paul says, is a ministry of death. It's a ministry of condemnation, 2 Corinthians 3, 9. 
Now, God really wanted the people to understand this, and he did something amazing to drive that point home, and Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You see, whenever Moses spoke with God about the law, Moses' face would begin to glow. It would begin to shine. It would literally radiate the glory of God. This is a miracle for sure. It would be so bright and so radiant and so glorious that people couldn't even look upon Moses' shining face. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. The Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. Well, eventually the glory would, would fade away and the people could look at Moses face to face. But until then, Moses would have to wear a veil to cover his face to keep the people away. If you go outside for a walk today, you will see people in face masks. They're covering their face. They're veiling themselves to keep you from getting their germs and to keep them from getting your germs. Moses had a similar veil, but it wasn't to hide germs. It was to hide the glory of God, which they couldn't see and live. All this sounds strange, doesn't it? But God is making a, a really simple point. God's law, like Moses' shining face, is, is wonderful, but it's ineffective. They couldn't get to Moses because the glory of God is too bright. We can't get to God through the law because he is too holy. We are separated from God the way they were separated from Moses. A veil separated us. His holiness is too glorious for us to approach him in. And our sin is too heinous. I'm sure you've now heard stories of people watching their loved ones die from COVID-19. What makes this disease so awful is they can't even be near them to say goodbye. They have to stand behind a window. The virus is too contagious. It's keeping us separated. The virus is awful. Sin is even worse. Sin keeps us from the presence of God. Please take your Bibles and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Let me read again these verses, which now you've heard more than once. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, now remember, that's Moses' ministry. That's the ministry God gave Moses, the ministry of delivering a law that, that could not bring life. If that ministry came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. And remember, it was a good ministry because these are the words of a good God. And that's what makes them glorious. Just because they can't save doesn't mean they aren't glorious. They're glorious because they're the words of a loving God showing his people how they ought to live. But as verse 7 ends... This ministry was being brought to an end. The law won't last forever. Verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory 
in the ministry of condemnation, again, that's Moses's ministry. If there was any glory in the ministry of that prophet bringing God's word to God's people, we'll look there at verse nine, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, again, what's being brought to an end is Moses' ministry, the ministry of the law, much more will what is permanent, the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of new covenant believers, much more will what is permanent have glory. So just like the glow on Moses's face would fade away and come to an end, so would the law. It came to be replaced by something better, something more glorious, something more permanent, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, Paul calls it the ministry of righteousness. This is our hope. Something so glorious, it will last forever. This is our hope. Something so glorious, we can gaze on it all day long. The glory is Christ himself in the gospel. When you have Christ, when you know him personally as your savior, when you bow down to him as Lord, and understand this, you can't know Christ personally as your savior without bowing down to him as your Lord. Well, Christ then does what the law could never do. He changes you from the inside out. You aren't like someone practicing every day, hoping to get better, only to realize how bad you really are. No, you are someone so radically forgiven by God that nothing, nothing separates you from your maker. It's a silly analogy, I know, but it's like you're now playing in the finals with Michael Jordan. Rules can't change you, but God can. Look a few verses down at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, Right, that is every believer, every true Christian, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, that's the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, where you have given yourself to Christ fully and completely. When he and his gospel is your hope, there is freedom. This is what the gospel brings. The gospel brings freedom. Christian freedom is now yours in Christ. It's yours today. Freedom from walking in darkness and in death. You've been born again. Freedom from bondage to sin. Your chains have been removed. Freedom from condemnation. 
You have been forgiven. You are no longer under the wrath of God. Freedom from the stench and the filth of your sin. You have been washed clean. Freedom from proving, freedom from having to prove that you deserve salvation. No, you've been justified. Freedom from your old and ugly habits. You are being sanctified. Freedom from thinking this virus-ridden world is your home. Take a moment and look around wherever you are. Do you see the walls? Do you see the floor? Do you see the ceiling? Might be a big home, might be a little home. If you're a Christian, that is not your home. You are freed from thinking this world is your home. You will be glorified. In fact, Paul goes on in chapter 5, verse 1 to say, Christian, you have already received a new home. Having a building, you have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In other words, your future home with the Lord is so sure that Paul can write of it as if it's already yours. This is the glorious gospel. When you admit that you are a sinner and put your faith in Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead, all this freedom is yours, not tomorrow, not the next day, but today, now, the veil has been removed. Christian, this is your hope. You have hope. Look at verse 19. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The veil has been removed. We get to see something better than Moses' shining face. We get to see with eyes of faith Christ himself. As we hear the gospel, we see the Lord. There is no veil separating us from God. Access to the Father has been granted. We are now becoming more and more like Christ each and every day. Our future is secure. Jesus did it. He did it all. Brothers and sisters, this is the glorious gospel. It's our hope. And more than anything, I want you to see that. Our hope is found in Christ. And so the old hymn is right. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil, Christ holds us. This is the glorious gospel, and its light will not be quenched by a global pandemic. The only way to be filled with boldness, real boldness, biblical boldness, is to let your heart be flooded by the light of this gospel. The only way that you will ever be a better evangelist is if this gospel is more important to you than anything. 
right? Christ has to be your hope or you'll never be bold. All the evangelism seminars in the world will not make you an evangelist. The hope of the gospel will. Now, if you're not a Christian, let me address you for just a moment. Please don't hesitate to become a Christian. Jesus Christ invites you to come, to turn to him, to trust in him. He invites you to see his face. But to do that, you have to confess your own awfulness. You've got to confess your own sin, not the sin of your neighbor, not the sin of the world, but your sin. You've got to declare, even though your friends and your family may make fun of you, that you know that God is holy and you are not. And you've got to put your faith in Christ, trusting that Jesus is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man who died on the cross for sinners like you and rose from the dead so that all that I said about freedom could be true for you. And he calls upon you through individuals like me to trust him with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. And you can do that now. And if this is something you want to do, I invite you to turn to the Lord where you are in this moment and put your faith in him. And you can even email me through our website and let me know what God is doing in your life. And I'm happy to share with you some next steps about following Jesus as your savior. Last week, we talked about a prayer for good. It goes something like this, Lord, will you not revive us again that your people may do good to everyone, especially to those in the household of faith? That was a prayer for good. Today, our prayer is for boldness. It goes something like this, Lord, will you not revive us again that your people, rooted in the hope of the gospel, might be very bold. The virus is keeping loved ones apart. Last week, I saw a video of an elderly man visiting his wife who must have been quarantined in a nursing home. He couldn't sit at her side. He couldn't stroke her hand. He couldn't hug her. He couldn't give her a soft kiss. I saw on the video that must have been taken by a nurse in the nursing home, this man pressing his face against the window, looking at his lovely bride who was lying in bed. He was clearly a man who knew hope because as he stood on the opposite side of the glass, he sang the words to amazing grace and his lovely bride, whom he couldn't touch, sang right along with him. The words end with this great stanza of hope. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. And grace will lead us home. Friends, that's what hope looks like. When revival hits our heart and revival hits our church, that's what it's going to look like. It's why we will be bold. May God use 2 Corinthians 3.12 to do a work of revival in your heart, 
Lord, will you not revive us again that your people, rooted in the hope of your gospel, may be very bold? Would you take a few moments now, wherever you are, to quietly reflect on what you've just heard? If you've got a house full of kids, that may not be the easiest thing to do, but just do your best to take a moment and ask God to revive you, to wake you up, to wake up our church, to make us very bold. Take a few moments now to do that, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, revive us again that your people rooted in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, might be very bold. Oh, Lord, revive us again that your people who know you to be the only God, who trust you with all of their lives, might live in the midst of this pandemic, quarantined or not, to the praise of your glorious grace. We, again, are in need of you. We're in need of believing with stronger faith than we've ever had, that you are our rock, our salvation, and our fortress. Heavenly Father, it's early April, and everything we're hearing from those around us is telling us that this month is going to be very hard for many of us. And so we pray now more than ever that our faith in you would be a trillion times stronger than the circumstances that we are about to face. We love you, we praise you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, before we have a, a closing time of updates and some more prayer, let's spend a few moments now and let's sing. <laughs>